A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to The World in 10. Today, the Times journalist who helped one family flee Afghanistan, the human impulse to name places, and need another TikTok craze? We've got the death divers going for gold. I'm Rebecca Myers. And I'm Stuart Willey, also in the next 10 minutes, the latest in the Spanish soccer saga. This is World News and Analysis, every day from The Times of London. Journalists don't often get personally involved in the stories they cover, but there is a fascinating story in The Times today of one who did. Larissa Brown, our defence editor, has helped one Afghan family flee the Taliban. That family are the Ghuls from Lashkar The father of that family is Shyster Ghul. Shyster is, a, is an incredible man. Um, he was he was uh, employed as the gardener where the British troops commanded all of their war fighting operations during that period. And and he was there in 2007. He was well known. And over the years, he, he stayed there working for them. Uh, he faced death threats because of that. Uh, his son, Jamal, was then employed by the British as well. He ended up out on the front line being shot at by the Taliban. And, and, and what was what was shocking was that in the years that followed, they did face numerous threats to their life. Jamal was even uh, shot at it uh, in his in his hometown of Lashkar by people who had had said that he needed to stop working for the British forces. Later on, Shyster's family faced even more trauma because Shyster's grandson was kidnapped. They were told that the Taliban had had, had done that because of Jamal's work with the British forces. So it, it's it's just been sort of an extraordinary mm. uh, time just learning what this you know what the family's been through. In the chaos as Kabul fell to the Taliban two years ago, there was a scramble to evacuate Westerners and those who had worked closely with them, and they faced peril because of that association. At the same time, Larissa was at her own wedding in the north of England. Larissa, you were getting these SMS text messages at your wedding. This followed some of your earlier work. I've been campaigning uh, to get the government to change its policy on Afghan interpreters for, for eight years now. And back in the day, uh, the policy was was, was really quite uh, tough. And more recently, just before the uh, withdrawal of, of British and American troops in August 2021, uh, the government did decide to widen that criteria much, much further and accept people who weren't just interpreters, but also people who served um, in other uh, sort of menial roles like cleaning jobs, uh, and and also if you're a gardener. Unfortunately, Shaisa never actually managed to leave Afghanistan at that time on an evacuation flight. 
it would actually um, it was it was weeks later after he uh, undertook a, a really perilous journey across Afghanistan through Taliban checkpoints that he actually made it to Pakistan and I was in regular um, contact with them at that point. You can read the full story of that family's struggle and how they eventually made it out of Afghanistan on the Times app or website now. So Rebecca, there's a story you're covering live today and there have been some big developments. This is the row over a kiss at the World Cup final. Yes, this is moving very quickly. But FIFA have announced in the past couple of hours that they are suspending Luis Rubiales, the president of the Spanish Football Federation, after he kissed player Eni Hermosa on the lips. She said she didn't like it, didn't consent to it, and that it made her feel vulnerable. We've covered all these developments and we still are, so do head to the times.co.uk for more on this. But this is a major moment in women's football and also, I think, for the wider Me Too movement. We've been hearing from the England players, the Lionesses, as well as other players from around the world. They're calling for this man to resign, but he said he wouldn't. No voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir. He's also said that he's the victim of social assassination. He's now suspended for 90 days pending the outcome of those disciplinary proceedings against him. But what are the Spanish Federation saying today? Well, it's quite extraordinary, actually. They are standing by him so far. And his accounts of events this morning, they said he hasn't lied about what happened. They released a series of photographs that they claim prove that she lifted him up during the hug while she said that she didn't. It's quite an interesting, unusual statement and it's caused quite a lot of outrage. It's extraordinary. What what do the fans think? Well, I think there is a sense among women who work in football, female players, but also fans who care about the game and fans of men's and women's football mm. that, you know, while things have improved in the game, there is still a long way to go. Men are very much, you know, the ones who hold the power in football. Um, even in women's football, a lot of the senior coaches are men, a lot of the um, associations are run by men. And I think people feel that they're just not listening. You know, the Spanish team went into the World Cup already not feeling they'd been listened to. They had raised issues with their coach, Jorge Vilda, who remained in charge. Some of them didn't even play in the tournament. And I think fans are, are tired of having to see the professional athletes that they admire deal with these kind of injustices. Rebecca, thanks for the update. I'm sure this isn't the last we'll talk about this. Absolutely not. I think this is going to keep going. It seems pretty natural for people to want to name stuff they come across. Where I grew up, there was a beach called Poverty Bay. At one end of that is young Nick's Head. Those were both named by the British explorer Captain Cook. His cabin boy was called Nick and Poverty because he didn't find anything that he really wanted there. <laughs> of course, these places, they already had names. Uh, Turangi Akiwa and Tekuri were, were the names respectively. They were given by the inhabitants already there before the British. Somewhere that doesn't have existing inhabitants, though, as far as we know, no. is the South Pole of the Moon. And India's Prime Minister is marking their success this week by giving it a name. Here's Narendra Modi saying, the point where Chandrayaan 3's moon lander came down, now that point will be known as... will be known as Shivshakti. Shivshakti. 
Shiv Shakti is a reference to the power of Hindu god Lord Shiva. Mr Modi visiting the Indian Space Research Organisation today there. That solar-powered rover will continue its work for the next two weeks. Mr Modi also announced August the 23rd will be National Space Day in India for now and on. Uh, the success of this lunar landing proving politically popular in that country. And we've actually got a fascinating piece in the Sunday Times tomorrow as well about why so many nations get involved in this kind of space race and how countries like India, Russia, Japan actually see the moon as a valuable scientific target now, a hunt for resources as well as a political one. So it feels like extreme sports are pretty common these days, so much so that they're more mundane than extreme. Are are you a fan of jumping off cliffs, Rebecca? I can't say I am. I don't think I've ever jumped off a cliff, actually, (laughs) and probably hopefully never will. (laughs) I'm I'm someone who really hates heights. Ah. I don't like any, I don't like to look down. You know, this is why working at the Times is quite difficult for me. (laughs) We are on the 11th floor. Yes, but teachers and parents used to ask me a lot, If your friends jumped off a cliff, would you jump too? Mm, The age-old question. Well, let me tell you about one group who do jump off cliffs with their friends. Today, this extreme sport is actually holding its world championships. We are all ready. Hi, Truth. This one's for you, bro. (laughs) Three, two, and... This is Dudsing. Competitors get up to the top of a cliff or a bridge or a platform and jump off. They've got their arms out their belly first. Extreme belly flopping has really caught on, apparently, <laughs> becoming a TikTok craze. Uh, they call themselves death divers, and Ooh. it seems perfect for social media with athletic young people jumping from scenic spots to musical soundtracks. Traditional Olympic diving, this is not. 3,000 spectators today watching at an open-air pool in Oslo, Norway. But as with so many extreme sports, it's become popular entertainment, not just in Norway, but also in France and even the United States. You can read about the crazy stunts and the masochism of jumping from 65 feet up in the Times app or website now. I don't think it's one I'll be taking up anytime soon. (laughs) Absolutely not. Last year, we talked for months about the protests in Iran. People took to the streets all across the country, demanding wholesale change. We saw remarkable social media videos of Iranians, especially Iranian women, chanting slogans and blocking streets. But then the protests did seem to peter out. On the next World in 10, we hear from the Sunday Times chief foreign correspondent, Christina Lam. She's been back to Iran to find out what happened next. The streets are quiet now um, because of the the crackdown from the regime. I think we saw about 22,000 people detained. Lots of uh, the women were raped in detention. Um, We saw people executed, mass poisonings of schoolgirls. We saw lots of people shot in the eye by pellet guns and some of them blinded. You know, it was a very vicious crackdown, and that's meant that the streets are now quiet. But that doesn't mean that the anger and frustration has gone away. There's more from Christina on those protests and their aftermath here on The World in 10 tomorrow. Make sure you don't miss out. Click follow or subscribe on your podcast app. Many thanks for being with us today. See you tomorrow.